Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Our gracious Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that we as a church would hear your voice. I pray that your word would come to us today with power and that your spirit would be at work in each of us, encouraging, comforting and challenging us. Uh, to be more and more like your son. And I do pray, Lord, that you would give us a renewed passion for, for your son and for your people. And I pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. As Megan mentioned before, we are in a season of Advent as a church. And the word Advent is just a fancy, I think pretty sure it's Latin. Uh, it means coming or arrival. Okay, it's nothing kind of magical, it just means coming or arrival. And so then during this season of Advent and Christmas uh, as a church, uh, it's a time when we look back to the original Advent, the coming of Christ in the flesh 2,000 years ago. But of course, it, the story didn't just end there. Christ promised that he would return again. Uh, and so we also look forward to his second advent, his second coming in the future. And we live our lives between these two realities, these two comings, these two advents of Christ. And the classic carol, Joy to the World, it looks ahead to this promised, certain future coming of Christ. And for us living today, we're given the challenge, in light of that, let every heart prepare him room. Let every one of us prepare space in our heart for him as he comes. And when Jesus does return, and we don't know when, he told us that we, we don't know when he is coming. When he does return, will there be space in your heart for him? Well, for these three weeks before our carol service, we are looking at encounters uh, in Matthew 8, encounters where people have uh, experienced Jesus for themselves, and we're seeing how their lives have been forever changed by him. If you were here last week, um, Gwyn did a wonderful job at, at uh, showing Jesus' um, power and mercy and compassion on, on a leper and a Roman centurion. In one sense, the kind of the bottom of society and, and the top of the society at the time. Well, today we are continuing in this chapter and we meet more people who encounter Jesus. And as we do that, Matthew gives us an insight into Jesus' own heart for people. But he also doesn't leave it at that. He reveals the hardship that Jesus faces. And ultimately, he invites us to make a place in our heart for him and show us what it looks like to have a heart for Jesus. Now, uh, Gwyn mentioned last week that there's a healthy diet of three-point sermons, and so I give that to you today. Uh, so to give you an idea of where we're heading from this passage, uh, we're looking at the heart of Jesus, the hardship of Jesus, and a heart for Jesus. But before we go into that, I wanted to set the scene for you. Uh, so, so Matthew, uh, in this chapter, he says that these events took place in a small town called Capernaum. 
Uh, so Capernaum is at the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is up in the top sort of part of, of Israel, Palestine, okay? Uh, one of the awesome things that I got to do, one of the privileges is uh, I was on a study tour a number of years ago and actually got to visit Capernaum for myself. Uh, it's a wonderful place. Uh, and what's really cool about it is um, they've actually un uncovered some particular sites. Uh, so, for example, um, no one really knows what mountain it was that Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, whereas we do know where Capernaum is, and there's a synagogue, they found the synagogue ruins, and so much of Jesus' teaching ministry actually takes place in the synagogue at Capernaum. And it's just wonderful to be able to stand in a place where you go, wow, like my saviour was here, walking, walking through these places 2,000 years ago. So wonderful. Uh, and so then there's a, the synagogue there, and then we've got uh, this funny-shaped uh, octagonal multi-layered building, which is, uh, which is Simon Peter's house. Uh, if you're curious about the, the shape of it, come and talk to me later. Um, and then just beyond that is the Sea of Galilee. So it's all, uh, it's all there in one little area. And of course, there's, there's more of the town that they're yet to uncover from their archaeological digs. Uh, this is a photo that I took standing between the two things when I was there. And so you can see the synagogue there, and you can see the house of Peter there. There's a, they built a large kind of UFO-shaped structure on the top. I think it was to protect it. Uh, but it does make it a little bit distracting now when you're trying to look in. But either way, Mark is uh, describing uh, these same events as Matthew, and he says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And so you can imagine them just, you know, walking down the steps and weaving their way around these other homes and making their way into this home. And then Matthew writes at the start of our passage, When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And as this woman encounters Jesus, we see the heart of Jesus. See, Jesus, he enters this home after a long day of ministry. I mean, so far today, if you read Matthew 8, he's healed the centurion's servant, and possibly the man with leprosy as well. And we know from other accounts of this that he's been teaching in the synagogue and healing others there. But now, Jesus, he enters his friend's home. The crowds are gone. The fanfare is hushed. Jesus would have been exhausted. And he would have been there to rest. But as he enters the home, he sees his disciples' mother-in-law. And she's not going well. The, 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 word, the original word literally means like she's been thrown by a fever, okay? It's like, it's like yeah, you've been tossed in, into bed, like this is just big. And I'm sure if you've had a fever, you, you know the feeling of being tossed uh, by that until you recover. And it's thought that she may have been suffering from, uh, from malaria or something like that, uh, which is reasonably common in this area of the world. But not only that... Just the fact that um, she was a, a woman um, meant that in the Jewish society culture at the time, um, yeah, she wasn't viewed particularly highly either. And yet in all of this, we see the heart of Jesus. You see, there was no publicity, there was no onlooking crowds to go, ooh, ah, and be impressed by all this thing. There was no pressure for Jesus to perform. Just a quiet, humble home. 
and a woman sick in bed. And even in his fatigue, Jesus is never too tired to help the suffering. See, Jesus wasn't one of those public figures who was, you know, all all flashy and fancy in, in the public life, but then behind closed doors was a totally different person. And it breaks my heart that just, we hear so many stories about people both inside the church and outside in the corporate world who live lives that way. But no, Jesus was different. His, his public um, identity matched his personal life as well. See, Jesus didn't need an audience or, or the cameras or whatever to be his best. No situation or person was was too humble for him to help, and help he did. Well, Matthew continues, he says, Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. And when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Uh, These sick and outcast men and women, they encounter Jesus. And they experience a saviour who is not only compassionate towards the the suffering and the ill, but more than that, he is a saviour who is able and willing to bear their suffering, to bear their troubles and bring about complete healing. Notice the detail about how uh, Peter's mother-in-law, she's healed, and then immediately she gets up and begins to wait on Jesus. She begins to serve him. You see, not only was she cured of the fever, but she was restored to full strength. So much so that she just automatically said, I'm going to serve you, Jesus. You know, the healing these people experienced, it was a total, full restoration. And, the, and what's interesting is, is uh, Matthew, he quotes this passage from Isaiah 53 to actually to show what was going on here. And if you've ever read Isaiah 53, uh, we were at a Colin Buchanan concert last night, and, uh, and Isaiah 53.6 is, is kind of etched in my mind, which in, in one sense is a shame because it's such a powerful passage and it's, sort of, it's such a kind of boppy sort of song. But anyway, helps me to remember... Uh, where Isaiah 53.6 is in the Bible. And anyway, and so he's quoting, I think it's Isaiah 53.4 here. Um, And the big idea in this whole chapter is that God is sending, he's promised him sending a servant in the future. And this particular servant would be faithful to God and would one day come to his people and would willingly take on the suffering and the evil of humanity onto himself. And through this servant's own suffering and death, Isaiah 53, it says that that this future servant would bring about complete healing from not just physical illness, but from all the power of evil and sin itself. And Matthew wants us to see here that this promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And one way I like to think about all these miracles that Jesus does is, is it, it, 
his miracles offer us a glimpse, a foretaste of what the kingdom of God looks like when it has reached all of its fullness, what it looks like when all of God's perfect purposes are restored in his world. It's a place where evil and suffering are done away with forever. And these miracles give us a little glimpse of what that future kingdom is going to really be like. And I think we, we all have that longing in us, don't we? Like, like whether, whether you're a Christian or not today, whether you even believe in God or not, we all have this sense that, that certain things in our world are just not meant to be. Sickness, suffering, evil, death. Well, Jesus' healings and ultimately his death and his resurrection, they proclaim loudly that the days of sickness and evil in our world are numbered. Jesus is victorious over the forces of darkness and evil and it's only a matter of time before these things are gone completely. And as we have a look at towards right the end of the Bible, we have this wonderful vision that this is what's going to happen, that longing in our hearts, like I'm longing for a place where there's no more evil and sickness and suffering and death. That is what God is doing in his purposes. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I think we all really want this, particularly for those of us who have lost loved ones or are suffering something terrible ourselves. And I know many of you are going through those things even now. We can find comfort in knowing Christ's heart and his desire to bring about these purposes, which ultimately will be brought into their fullness when he comes again. I appreciate uh, the historian John Dixon. I appreciate his honesty when he, he, this is, he was asked a question about where is God when the September 11 attacks happened? And he reflected on this. He said, I don't have all the answers, but when I see what Jesus went through, I realize that God understands my feelings of anger and pain. And I realize that even though I can't always work out what his hand is doing, I can always trust his heart. I can always trust his heart. And these verses in Matthew 8 show us his heart. He has compassion on the vulnerable, on the oppressed, on the sick and on the suffering. But then at this moment, Matthew wants to give us a fuller picture of what Jesus is on about. And so he turns to give us a glimpse of what the hardship is that Jesus goes through as well. So he's had the hardship of Jesus. From verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. A scribe, a a, a Jewish teacher of the law, he comes to Jesus 
and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What a wonderful commitment. And we're not really sure why this uh, scribe wants to follow Jesus. We don't really get a glimpse into his motive, but if we look at what's already come before in Matthew's Gospel, there's been some powerful healing, there's been some teaching, uh, some amazing things happening. And so it's possible that he was swept up by the spectacle of, of all the healings and teaching and things like that. Maybe, I suppose it's, it's always a challenge, isn't it, for the human heart to know what our motivations are in, in saying, I'm going to put up my hand and serve. I, uh, I came across this poster, which is kind of crazy, actually. Uh, so this was a recruitment poster for uh, during World War I that ran in Australia. And, and I see, free trip to Europe, okay. But then in, uh, very cleverly, they sneak in all these other details, of course, in between. Uh, basically saying here, you need to be prepared to, to do your duty where all able-bodied people should be and protecting Europe. And anyway, so, so it's all there, but I don't know, it feels about, if you've heard the, 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 uh, the saying bait and switch, where you're sort of, you know, you're, you're lured with a particular thing in mind, but then when you actually get there, you realise it's not at all what you expected I suspect that many of the recruits to World War I, they were uh, excited by the idea of, uh, of just camaraderie and, uh, and mateship and, and all this, or even, maybe even just travelling to Europe, see what it's like, without perhaps considering the, uh, the extreme suffering and trauma that awaited them. But whatever the, this scribe's motivations for wanting to say, I'm going to put my hand up, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go, to the ends of the earth, wherever you want to go, I will be there with you. Whatever those motivations are, Jesus' reply to him was not, you know, free trip to Europe. It was uncompromisingly honest. Jesus was always honest about what it involved to follow him. And he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man, which is Jesus' own preferred title for himself, has no place to lay his head. As I was reflecting on what this phrase might, might mean, I, I, I believe there, there's, there's depth to what he is saying here. Like I think on the, on the one hand, um, you, look at, you look at the way his life is described in the Gospels uh, and, and he is a man who's constantly on the move. He is travelling from place to place, uh, he's setting up camp, he's uh, needing to kind of, uh, he doesn't really have a place where he can call his home. You know, he doesn't have that investment property in the Mediterranean coast, at least not that I'm aware of. Like he's, he's a man on the move and day to day would have been questioning, where am I going to be staying the next week? I heard one person say that Jesus' life, it began in a borrowed stable and ended in a borrowed tomb. Gives you a picture of what a life following Jesus might be like. Uh, and if you've ever watched the, uh, the, uh, the show The Chosen, it's quite excellent, I, I, I love it, uh, you get this real glimpse into what, it, what life as a disciple, that, that original group of people would have been like following Jesus. And so much of the show is just walking around and just 
talking and not quite sure what's going to be going on and then going, oh, we have to pack up the camp again and we have to settle up here. How long are we staying here? I'm not sure. Uh, and, and so and at one point it's like, you do realize that we've run out of food. What are we going <laughs> to Like it's just life as a disciple would have been hard. And Jesus, he, he is saying in this chapter in, uh, in Matthew, if you want to follow me, that's great, but make sure you consider what it will cost because it will be more than you expect. Jesus is saying, my, my life so far has, has been marked by conflict, rejection and suffering, and if you follow me, you can expect the same yourself. After all, he does say a disciple is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. But as I was looking into this, I discovered that, like, this little nugget by accident. I was looking at where, where on earth else does it say, lay his head in the New Testament? And remarkably, there's only three times in the whole New Testament where it mentions it. All three relate to Jesus. We've got our passage in uh, Matthew 8 that we're looking at. We've got uh, Luke's account, the parallel account of exactly the same conversation. And yet there is one more. Jesus says in our passage that he has no place to lay his head. But there is one place where John, the disciple, who would have been part of this conversation, did notice that Jesus lay his head. And it was on the cross. John 19.30 When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then laying his head, he gave up his spirit. Yes, Jesus calls us to follow him in suffering and rejection, but, but Jesus, he, he knew where he was going. He knew that his journey would lead to a cross. And ultimately, following Jesus is an invitation to take up our cross and follow him as well. And in fact, he says just that later on in Matthew. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a hero of the faith in the Second World War, once said, the cross is laid on every Christian when Christ calls someone he calls them to come and die. And Bonhoeffer himself actually uh, was, was, uh, was executed for expressing his faith. And I think sometimes when we're, we're, we're eager to share um, the good news of Jesus with our, with our friends or our family or people hopefully at the Pines, uh, we we can be tempted to kind of do away with this sort of side of things that Jesus was, was very upfront about. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Jesus, this is the same Jesus that said in John 10 that I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Like Jesus, he is on about joy and fulfillment and purpose and identity and meaning and empowerment and all those wonderful things that our hearts just crave, Okay. But let's make sure we're not neglecting this other side that Jesus was very upfront with. It is hard to follow Jesus. 
you will suffer. And I do wonder how honest we are with ourselves as well. Like, like when we follow Jesus, are we expecting an easy ride? And I think if I'm honest, maybe I am. Or are we truly reflecting and embracing what it costs? You know, when we face um, opposition or rejection for our faith, even like little things at work or whatever that might be, are we quick to just like play the victim card and saying, I'm, I'm, you know, you're, you're, I'm, a, I'm a victim here? Or are we more like the original apostles, these disciples who, when they suffered greatly for the first time, really, being a Christian in Acts, they rejoiced because they felt that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. It's a totally different attitude. And to be honest, I, I don't actually know what experiencing rejection like that for my faith really is like. Okay? I've, by God's goodness, I have had a reasonably comfortable life. Okay, so I don't really know what that feels like to have just intense persecution or opposition because of my faith. Perhaps beyond a couple of like awkward looks, really. And maybe you're similar to me, but I am aware that in this room, and certainly in our wider church community, there are many people who have really experienced uh, ridicule, persecution, and even just having to move away from their own country because of their faith in Jesus. You guys know the cost of identifying as a follower of Jesus more than at this stage that I ever will. I want to tell you about my, uh, my friend uh, from Malaysia. Uh, I'll call her Caitlin. Uh, I met Caitlin uh, here a number of years ago at a university campus while I was, while I was working uh, in the Christian Union there. Uh, and through the international student um, group, uh, she became a Christian, which was awesome. It's, uh, it's just, it brings me so much joy to hear about people um, making that step and putting their faith in Jesus. And of course, in this moment of joy, she's like, I, I, I want to share this wonderful news with people. And so she contacted her parents back home in Malaysia. But being Buddhist, they were furious. So much so that her father said, I want you to renounce your faith in Jesus and stop going to church or I will disown you. I wonder what you would have done in that situation. Or maybe for some of you, you have been in that situation. What would you do? See, to follow Jesus means to share in the same life of hardship as him. And in the end, Matthew doesn't actually tell us how this scribe in this, in this encounter actually responded. So it's a bit of an unknown. I'm, I'm willing to guess that maybe he didn't actually decide to follow Jesus after all, but I guess we won't know. Instead, Matthew then turns to describe the next encounter. And in this encounter, we learn what it would look like to have a heart for Jesus. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me 
and let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, in one sense, this this man's request seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Like, I mean, like, my, my father just passed away. Please, Jesus, let me go and sort out the affairs of, of my estate, the funeral, the burial. Help me grieve with my family. And once that's done, I will come and follow you. And considering that all we've been thinking about Jesus' own compassion for people in their moments of need, like, am I the only one who finds Jesus' response just a little cold or maybe even a bit harsh? Like, like he's just lost his dad. But as I reflected back over these verses this week, I came to realise that this man's comment, that that's not really what he meant at all. You see, in, uh, in ancient uh, Jewish culture and in some Eastern cultures today, uh, to say, I must bury my father, or words to that effect, it doesn't actually mean that your, your father has passed away and is awaiting a burial. Uh, in all likelihood, this father was still alive, well and truly alive. And, and to say that I must bury my father is a way of saying that I must fulfill my, my obligations to my family, uh, and, and as my parents eventually decline in health, then I'll need, you know, I need to take care of the affairs of that. And then once all that's happened, once I'm then free, then I'll come and follow you, Jesus. But that could, that could be years away, do you see? That could be years. And Jesus was wise. He knew the human heart. And he knew, Jesus knew that in this man's heart, his highest priority was actually his current situation. See, Jesus knew that if this man didn't follow him right at this moment, then he never would. Because when you've got other things first in your heart that are not Jesus, then you're always going to find new things coming up, new priorities, new opportunities, new distractions, and then we postpone and we postpone and we postpone that, that commitment to follow Jesus until eventually it becomes a distant memory. Uh, speaking about uni ministry, I remember uh, I'd, I'd just learnt the gospel presentation, Two Ways to Live, if you've ever seen it. It's got kind of some cool diagrams and things. And I, and I remember sharing it with this, uh, with this student in the cafeteria at, at the uni. Uh, and as I got to the end, he's like, I want, to be a, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. And I'm like, awesome, this thing works. <laughs> uh, but then as I got to talk with him, um, he's like, uh, and he got to think about what actually what that meant. He's like, oh, actually, no, I think I, need, I should probably finish my studies first. And then, you know, once I've finished all that stuff, then I'll, then I'll come and follow Jesus. Uh, and so we, we, got, we got some details from him and, and whatnot. Um, but, of course, we never saw him again because he had other things first in his heart, which is sad. And I do wonder how many times that each of us, how we've felt the Spirit's prompting in our hearts. Maybe, you, maybe you're feeling like you just need to go deeper with him or to, to just step out of your comfort zone and do that thing, or maybe this is the day that I'm going to stop doing whatever that might be. And you really feel that that's God laying it on your heart 
I do wonder how often we have these divine moments and we let them pass without seizing them. Megan challenged us a few weeks ago at our Vision Sunday, as we move forward, let's make sure we seize these divine moments. God's mission has gone live, and he is laying these things before us, and so let's not put them off, let's not go, oh, I'll get on to that in years to come. Like, what are we waiting for? If God has given us an opportunity, let's step out in faith. And that's what Jesus is challenging us to do. And he says to this man, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. I think Jesus is using some of this man's own language back at him. Okay, it's pretty, it's pretty full on language. But what I believe he's saying is he's saying, stop putting your old spiritually lifeless pursuits and identity and stuff ahead of mine. I want you to follow me wholeheartedly. I want to be first in your heart, even before all of that stuff that you hold dear, even before family. So what happened to my friend Caitlin? Well, her, her home culture back in Malaysia, uh, she was telling me, it, it really valued obedience to parents very highly. And so she was at a real point where she had to seriously work out what it meant to follow Jesus. Would she count the cost and risk this relationship with her family? What would she do? And so as she considered the cost of what it would be to follow Jesus, she said to her parents, my relationship with Jesus is more important to me than your approval. Gosh, that would have taken guts to say. Now, I haven't seen Caitlin for years now. Uh, She's back in Malaysia. But she is still following Jesus. And not only that, but after after a long time of banning it, um, her father has finally started letting her go back to church. And even her parents are slowly becoming less hostile to the good news of Jesus. For Caitlin, in a a hostile family, God called her to boldly, courageously put Jesus first in her heart. And I am very thankful and grateful that Jesus is honouring her sacrifice for him. But God is calling each of us here to make room for Jesus. Let every heart prepare him room. And so it begs the question for us, where is Jesus in your heart? Like even if you are following Jesus, whereabouts is he? In your list of priorities, in your sense of your worth, like what is that thing that is so most valuable to you? And where are all these other things by comparison? Because, I mean, if we're honest, maybe, maybe many of us are not that different from that last person. Maybe, maybe you might be better than me, but even, even, even I have mixed motives with lots of things. You know, maybe, maybe your heart is saying, I will follow Jesus, but first, but first, let me, let me take care of the grandkids, but first let me, you know, take my children to, to, to dancing or, or sports, or let me, let me, you know, let me get that promotion at work, and then my work situation will be fine, and then I'll come follow you, you know, but first, 
let me go on that holiday that I wanted to go on. But first, I've got a new caravan, I want to give it a spin. But first, my kitchen needs renovation. Now, I don't know your heart, but Jesus does. I feel he is calling each of us to be honest before him and make that step to to go deeper with him, to put him first in your hearts. You know, we have encountered the heart of Jesus in this passage. We've been confronted with the hardship that, that he faces and he expects that we will face if we join him. And we've been challenged to open our hearts fully to him, to put Jesus first in our hearts. Now, I began this morning with the, the words of joy to the world. But as I've been reflecting on, on what Jesus is calling us to here, I want to read a verse from the old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Hopefully you can get past the, some of the old language, but it cuts to the heart of what Jesus is, is calling us to. One of the verses says, Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these encounters with Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you for the love and compassion that we see in these encounters. Thank you for your honesty about the cost of following Christ. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to light those areas that we put ahead of you in our hearts. Please, Lord, help us experience the joy of putting you first in our lives. And Lord, for those who are not sure where they stand with you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. May they be captivated by your love and compassion, but may they also consider what it does cost to be a follower of you. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us, us as a community of believers, to be a place where we can follow Jesus and be encouraged and strengthened even in a hostile world. And I pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.